This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. It's July 5th, 2019. I'm Peter Terzakian. And I'm Jackie Forrest. And today we're going to talk about Canadian energy security yeah. and how secure are we? How secure are we? Well, we all know how we like our energy, Jackie. We like it to be cheap. We like it to be clean, safe, and we also like it to be secure. You know, quite often we're not really satisfied, are we? You know, when we get our utility bill, sometimes we get a little bit of a shock when we open it up. When it's clean, you know, we've had so many discussions on our podcast about being green and clean. And often for many people, unless it's a perpetual motion machine, it'll never be clean enough. And of course, safety is just an assumed thing. It's paramount. Nobody wants to even uh, feel they've been electrocuted by putting their finger in a light socket or something. And, and of course. I, and, and, and by the way, I think of all those attributes, though, people just take the safety for granted. For, oh, they just take it for granted. Uh, but yeah. generally, people care about cheap. You know, if you want to get people upset around a family dinner table, oh. start asking about the utility bill. And, oh, the price you know, of the how, pump yeah, or and whatever. It's never yeah. going to be cheap enough for people. No, no. You know, I think we're talking a bit extremes here, but, you know, there's an instinctual knowledge in that fourth dimension and security that you know, when you flip the light switch, the lights go on. I mean, Jackie, did you think this morning when you woke up to get up and brush your teeth or have breakfast or whatever your morning routine is, you flip the lights on? I mean, did you actually consciously think the lights would not go on? No, they always go on. And then when you do have a power outage, you're just miserable. You're just miserable you know? and you're, you're taken aback and shocked. I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to know when actually the power grid was not all that stable. And uh, the power used to go out in the middle of winter and my mother used to bring out candles and we just sort of used to wait it out. Nowadays, it's so rare to have a power outage in a big city. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Like, I remember my childhood all the time, and mm -hmm. I can't think of the last major outage that no. I've had right now. No, no. It might have been like short half-hour things yeah. uh, during, you know, storms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th there's no doubt that, you know, people start to have a sense of panic. Uh, it's understandable because our energy is just so vital to our day-to-day -day living that when it's not there then we just sort of uh, start to freak out or panic. And the other related panic is the Wi-Fi goes out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And that runs on energy too. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. But, you know, when you think about security in Canada, you don't think about it too much. But recent events, two recent events that we want to talk about in today's podcast would suggest that actually we might be one of the least secure countries in the world when it comes to energy, particularly oil. And you might say, oil, are you kidding? Like we are the fifth largest producer of oil and gas in the world and that we're not secure in oil. Well, let's think about that. Canada actually exports about uh, 3.5 million barrels a day and we consume about 2.5 million barrels a day. And still we have 3.5 million barrels a day of exports. So most Canadians would think we're pretty secure in terms of our oil. Right. Uh, but here's the thing people don't get. Uh, we actually are dependent on foreign oil imports into Eastern Canada. So although we produce a lot of oil, uh, we can't get that oil across this country. And so that we are dependent on sources, mostly from the United States, but also from other places like the UK, Norway, Africa, and Saudi Arabia. And the place that is sort of the ground zero of our energy dependency on oil in central Canada, where the bulk of our population in this country resides, is Sarnia, Ontario. And in Sarnia, Ontario, we have a fairly major petrochemical refinery complex, right? Yeah, that's right. So just to give you some idea of the infrastructure, 
and, and I want to go back and maybe talk about the history of, of why it is the way it is. But today, there's a pipeline that comes from the United States that feeds the Sarnia refining complex. And in Ontario, we have key refineries, including Sarnia Imperial, Suncor and Shell, as well as an Imperial refinery in Nanotoke that rely on a pipeline that comes from the United States. Now, some of this oil might actually be coming from Canada, but it has to move through the United States in order to get to Sarnia in Ontario. And on top of that, there's a pipeline that goes from Sarnia to Quebec uh, that the Quebec refineries rely on as well. And there's two major refineries in right. Quebec that so rely on So let's talk about that. that first one. The first one is just sort of innocuously called Line 5, right? That's an Enbridge line that comes from the United States, as you mentioned, and feeds into Sarnia. Like, what's the throughput of that? It's about 540,000 barrels a day. And, and you may ask, you know, why would a country like Canada that produces so much oil not actually have infrastructure to move oil across the country? And the history goes way back. Uh, it goes back 70 years ago when the Canadian Parliament debated the merits of building this pipeline to connect Western Canada with Eastern Canada. And the company that was proposing the project chose to go through the United States. Uh, and the reason for that, it was a lower cost option because it was quite expensive to build through the terrain of over right, the Great the Lakes. Shield, yeah. yeah, there's a Great Shield, but also a longer distance. Mm-hmm. And so they did what they suggested the most economic thing, the cheaper thing, which was to uh, go forward with a pipeline that would route through the United States. Now, the Canadian trade minister at the time, C.D. Howe, preferred an all-Canadian route on the Canadian side of the Great Lakes. But the owner of the project convinced him due to the longer distance and more difficult terrain, and it would also add $10 million of cost, and it Ooh. would delay the project for a year that they couldn't do that. And by the way, the majority owner was Imperial Oil at so the time. So f- at that time, for a cost of $10 million bucks, which I would argue <laughs> on a inflation-adjusted basis would probably be about $60, $70 million today, we forfeited our sovereignty over being energy self-sufficient without going through third-party uh, transit. Yes, and I think uh, that was a, a mistake. I think something that Canadians may come to indeed regret 70 mm-hmm. years later. Interesting point is Mr. Howe continued to worry about the situation a little bit later on. In fact, in four years later, in 1954, he was instrumental in forcing the natural gas line to take an all-Canadian route, even though it was more expensive than going through the U.S. Mm-hmm. So he may be rolling in his grave right now to know that Western Canadian gas has been losing market share in Ontario as we can't find a way to get our gas out there cheaply through a line that was built that many years ago. But we do have the line and we do have that opportunity right. if, if we did have energy security issues. So let's come back to oil though. So because of this history, we have uh, no way to get oil from Western Canada to Eastern Canada, Eastern Canada, Quebec and Ontario unless we go through the United yeah. States. Right. Energy East, by the way, as a side note, was supposed to do that. In fact, take it all the way to New Brunswick. But that was uh, quashed, I think, in 2017 or yeah, so. Yeah, 2017. So that would have been a great project for Canadian energy security. Right. It also had uh, pretty compelling economics. Right. Too. Okay. So that's the history of it. The security event that is happening is that line five, that line five that goes into Sarnia with 540,000 barrels a day may be cut. That's right. So Michigan's attorney general last in the last few weeks has sued to shut down line five that flows under the water between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron in a, a water body called the Strait of Mackinac. The concern is there is a lot of occurrence in this area and that if there were to be an oil spill, it would have even worse impacts than sort of any other place in the lake. And that the pipeline is quite old. And in 2018, there was a bit of a scare when a boat anchor 
hit the line. It damaged it, but it didn't actually cause a rupture. Mm -hmm. But that's when the concern started around this pipeline at that point. Now, Enbridge has suggested they would put a tunnel over the line to protect it so that it wouldn't be hit by anchors. But uh, it's going to take like eight to 10 years, potentially, for all that work to get done. The governor of Michigan is saying that's way too long. It's too much risk, and we need to shut the pipeline down because there's too much environmental risk of an oil spill into this very sensitive water body. So basically... A decision from outside of Canada can cut Canada off in its major refinery complex that serves petroleum products to Ontario and Quebec. That's right, uh, because you know if this state has the power to shut down this pipeline, right. uh, that would mean that there would be a lot less crude oil flowing right. into Ontario. Now there is another line, a line six B, that also comes into Sarnia through the Enbridge system that isn't. Uh, being talked about being shut down. But the problem is that line serves many U.S. refineries right. en route. And so there may be a trickle of oil left uh, even um, in that case, although probably most U.S. refineries that are associated with the line would also have to be cut back. So it may affect some of those U.S. refineries as well, uh, assuming that this line 6B is sort of prorationed um, and provides some oil to come into eastern Canada. Okay, let's come back to that in a minute. But let's say hypothetically that... The ballpoint pen is used to sign the cutting of this line or the shutting down of this line. Then Sarnia's only other option is a line called Line 9, which goes from Sarnia up to Montreal and beyond, right? Yeah, let's talk about this Line 9. And so I think it's worth just backing up a little bit in terms of the history of of this Line 9. So this is a pipeline that connects Sarnia and Montreal, Mm -hmm. where there's a major refinery. And also uh, crude oil could also get to Quebec City by tanker from that point. Now, this pipeline was actually started in 1976 when the Trudeau government wanted uh, to be able to ship Western Canadian crude oil to refineries in Montreal uh, and in Quebec City. At that point, there was no way to get Western Canadian oil into Montreal with, well, I guess... Uh, you have a historical story that there was a way to get it, but it wasn't a very uh, no. It wasn't. I mean, I've written about it before. Is that during the 1973 oil price shocks, the Arab oil embargo, there was oil from Alberta that went through the Trans Mountain Pipeline to Burnaby, where it was picked up by Greek tankers and brought through the Panama Canal, all around through the Caribbean, up the east coast of the United States, and in, eventually into Montreal and uh, the refineries there. And so it just gives you a sense of the insecurity of our country. I mean, to me, 1973, that whole crisis was really a drill test of what can happen when you don't have energy security from coast to coast. Well, and interesting enough, uh, Line 9 was started to be talked about in 1973, and it was constructed in an operation. It was a response to that event. It was a a response saying, oh boy, we're not energy secure, we better build this pipeline to ensure that we don't have to do that again. That's right. And at the time, the Trudeau government, the first Trudeau government, uh, wanted, because it's kind of ironic, they wanted to build a pipeline into (laughs) Quebec, and uh, they supported doing that. Now, what happened was that... uh, It wasn't very economic. Sure, it provided energy security, but at the time, the Quebec refineries, including in Montreal and Quebec City, could actually get their crude oil cheaper by buying it from offshore suppliers than pay for Western Canadian crude and pay all the transportation costs to get Mm -hmm. it into Montreal. And so it pretty much was an economic failure and barely used until in 1996, when the company that owned it, IPL, expressed their interest to reverse the flow so that it would change direction. So that basically we could move crude oil from Montreal 
into Sarnia. Well, why would you do that? Because Sarnia refiners wanted that cheaper crude too at so that they're, time. They're bringing it in from tankers from the Middle East and Nigeria and places like that into the port of Montreal into now the reversed line nine going flowing the other way back into Sarnia. So that those Sarnia refiners could get the cheaper right. crude than what they right. could get through the right. Enbridge system at the time. So this line nine sort of flips back and forth in terms of the way it flows. Yeah. So times changed again in, in 2009 and 2011 when we had the surge of Canadian oil sands as well as the light tide oil in the United States. Suddenly, prices in North America were quite a bit cheaper than international, which is still the case today. Right. And the idea was, well, hey, those Montreal and Quebec refineries, now they want the cheaper crude that's coming from North America. So let's change the direction of the pipe again. Right. So today it flows from Sarnia to Quebec and is delivering crude that a lot of it is coming through that same line five and continues on uh, right. to those refineries. And right. so, uh, you know, we've gotten cheaper crude and maybe lower energy prices, which is one of the things people want, right? right? Cheaper energy. But what we've given up is energy securities because if this line was going the other direction right now and the line five was cut off, it would provide more security of supply to the folks we could, in Ontario. we could make up the loss of the line five by bringing in tankers into Montreal and shipping it to Sarnia. That's right. But now if line five is cut, we can't do that because the pipe flows from uh, Sarnia to Montreal. That's right. Now, Montreal and Quebec City will probably be okay as they can bring tankers in, but the Sarnia guys are kind of stuck. Well, it's all, you know, it's all very confusing to think about these pipelines and flows and things. But if you look at the map, which I think we'll post on the website, you can take a look at it. Uh, but it is of concern that with, as I said, the stroke of a ballpoint pen, line five could potentially be cut or the judge's gavel, you know, it could, it could, it could be cut. And then what? Now, we also know, and I think you made mention of it earlier, that there are many American refineries in the Midwest that are dependent upon this line five too. So, in some ways, if they uh, if Michigan decides to stop it, cut it, then there's sort of a mutually assured destruction, I call it, you know, of uh, of energy security because then the U.S. would be short too. Yeah, if line five was shuttered, there would be pro-rationing, as I said, of the line 6B pipeline capacity. And so I think many U.S. refiners would be impacted. I would say pretty much every refiner east of Superior, so the Chicago refineries, Toledo, mm -hmm. Ohio, uh, would be impacted, but maybe not as much as, as the folks in Sardia. So there would be other folks that would be upset about this change. Right. I, and so, I, you know, I don't know how to handicap this in terms of what it is. We're not trying to pull fire alarms here saying, oh my God, there's a looming probability that Line 5 is going to be cut. But I think having said that, it's interesting when you think about how environmental policy intersects with energy security policy, intersects even with geopolitics, uh, that these are things we need to think about. Well, you know, I think many of us don't worry about energy security. We take it for granted, like mm -hmm. when I flip on the light switch, uh, because we've never had a scenario since 1973 yeah, well, where we've had to worry about it. Well, speaking of 1973, I remember it. I'm old enough to remember the queues and the lineups and the hoarding and all that stuff that sort of happened. So that brings us to event number two. We came within, we learned five, ten minutes of the United States conducting military action against Iran a couple weeks ago. And in the event that that military action took place, we really don't know what the unintended consequences might have been. I tend to think that it could have escalated out of control pretty quickly, potential for Iran to start lobbing missiles across the Straits of Hormuz or uh, the Persian Gulf into Saudi Arabia. Uh, like we could have had 
lengthy shortages of oil. I mean, how much passes through this trade of hormones? I think it's like 25, 30% of the world's oil, right? Yeah, so it's a significant impact. And even though Canada and North America takes less and less oil from the Middle East, it would still have ripple effects because it would create higher prices and a shortage, which, you know, has effects even for countries like ourselves that that have a lot of oil. Well, again, you know, I point to 1973, even 1979, when the price of oil really rose in 73, there actually were shortages and lineups. And it induces a different kind of behavior, not only at an individual level, but at a state level, a nation level, where you get hoarding, you get a hoarding of of oil. So we really don't know in the event of cutting now of the Straits of Hormuz as a lifeline to our global oil supply, if we would be able to have the privilege of having American oil come into Sarnia from Line 5. It could cause hoarding and different behaviors by different countries. Depending on the severity of any outage in the Middle East, you could imagine a situation of hoarding. And again, we've already talked about that uh, because Line 9 flows the wrong way now up to Montreal from Sarnia rather than the other way. Bringing in tankers loads from other countries would not be possible. Well, it wouldn't be possible into Sarnia, um, but it definitely would be possible in Quebec City. By the way, I wanted to clarify... Quebec can receive crude by another way, the Portland-Montreal pipeline, which was actually used back in 1973 It was used in 1973. So, you know, even in the winter, Montreal could get crude oil from offshores, assuming the folks there that uh, in the United States are supportive of them continuing to use that pipeline. There has been some pushback pushback in the local community uh, where the start of that pipeline is that they don't want to see uh, crude oil loadings. And then Quebec City can receive uh, tankers where they are. this, This whole thing, again, I think highlights something quite interesting with environmental policy and not in my backyard pipeline politics and policy that it's now intersecting with energy security issues, particularly in this country. And I would say that, you know, based on what we've seen, we're not really prepared. And I think another important thing to recognize is that Canada does not have a strategic petroleum reserve. And what's a strategic petroleum reserve? Well, strategic petroleum reserve was actually enacted back in the 1970s as a result of the uh, oil price shocks and the 73 Arab oil embargo. Basically, the International Energy Agency coordinated many of the uh, the Western countries, uh, but would also include, for example, uh, Japan and, and others in the OECD, as we call them, Organization of Economic Cooperative Development, countries to implement big storage caverns that would provide up to 60 days of supply in the event of outage. And many countries have that, including the United States. Yeah, the United States one gets talked about quite a lot, right? Because yeah. recently, yeah. they've been selling off some of their storage right. as they have grown in their own production. Yeah. Their requirements for keeping uh, as much crude oil have decreased because yeah. it's basically, you want to be able to uh, compensate for the amount you need to import. Yeah. And so as you grow your domestic productions like the Americans have, you don't need to store quite as much. Yeah. And it, in Article 2 of the agreement between countries. So, you know, basically, it's a collect set of storage facilities that in the event of outage, for example, conflict in the Middle East, that the storage would release, ration out the oil in these reserves to countries that needs it. Now, interestingly, that Article 2 uh, of that agreement says that if your exports are greater than your imports, you don't need 
to have a strategic petroleum reserve, the notion being that you're okay. Yeah, like uh, for example, <laughs> Canada, we produce like almost 5 million barrels a day of supply and we export, you know, three and a half million barrels yeah. a day. So we got lots of crude oil. We don't have to worry about storing right. crude. Except that we don't have this east-west connectivity. So actually only really with the western provinces, uh, Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, are the ones that are energy secure in this context, not the whole country and certainly not Sarnia. Well, and Ontario is something like 30% of our population. So 30% of our population doesn't have energy security. And Quebec has more optionality, right? Because they can bring stuff off, but they're still somewhat dependent on this line as well. Right, right. And I mean, even if we... Well, we're to be able to tap in to the strategic petroleum reserves collectively as part of this agreement. The tankers coming in, as you say, into Montreal. Montreal's okay. Quebec City's okay. But Sarnia is not unless we reverse that flow of that pipeline again. If there was an emergency, how long would it take us to do that? To give you an example, the last reversal of the the pipeline was uh, asked for on the end of 2012, and it was the end of 2015 when it actually started up. Mm-hmm. You know, it took three years. And that was long delayed. And this is not building a new pipeline. This was just reversing it. And there was a lot, I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of opposition to mm-hmm. uh, to it. There was extended hearings and um, took a long time. Yeah. And I don't know what would happen in time of uh, global shortage. Maybe it would be ex- the, the flow reversal would happen much more quickly. We don't know. And that's the point, though, that we're trying to make is we don't know. But I think we can all agree that there are probabilities that a combination of a stroke of a ballpoint pen or a cruise missile you know, can cause serious energy security issues in our own country. And these are things that we need to think about. Now, there's one thing we haven't talked about is that, uh, you know, we did not construct a cross-Canada oil pipeline, but we were... Uh, wise enough to construct a cross-Canada railroad line. So could rail be used as an emergency way of shipping our oil to eastern Canada? I think that definitely could be a solution. Uh, Suncor actually has come out to address this concern, saying that they think that they would be fine, that they would look at options for crude by rail to get the oil to Sarnia. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, crude by rail uh, capacity is is not uh, bottomless here. We have a shortage of crude by rail capacity out of Western Canada. And so that would have to divert uh, those rail cars that are currently maybe going to sure. the U.S. to go to Eastern Canada. And we don't even know. I mean, I certainly don't know if we have offloading facilities in Sarnia for all those rail cars. Yeah, that capacity, I would doubt that we do. We've never had to use. We've it. never had to have that level of crude by rail mm-hmm. going into Sarnia. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there would be some constraints there, but uh, that would be the alternative that we would have that could happen quickly. Mm-hmm. So if policymakers didn't have enough to think about in this country, uh, we have a new dimension in the pipeline and politics issues, and that is energy security. I think the, the, the broad lesson, again, is if when we think about energy strategy, energy policy, environmental policy, it has to include these other dimensions, which are security, because you don't really think about it in the morning when you flick the lights on or, or go to the gas pump to get your gas, but when there's a shortage, you think about it pretty fast. Yeah, it's going to be a big problem. If people are upset when they think that their energy bill is too high, they're going to be like many, many times more upset if they don't have energy at all. Yeah. Okay, well, that's our show for today. Good. Thanks for joining. If you like this podcast, please rate us and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.